It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis uh, with the number one show at 5 o'clock. And we're here to tell you all the stuff that's going on. And uh, in the studio with us, we've got two common sense Democrats and only one common sense of Republican. Craig, um, you're outnumbered. I'm outnumbered today. What happened, John? Here we have Craig Eaton, uh, a famous attorney, uh, 10 years uh, with the GOP in Brooklyn. And uh, he, he's our common sense Republican. And we have Judge Richard Weinberg and Governor David Patterson, two common sense Democrats. And, and let me tell you, we're going to write a new book, In, in Search of Common Sense Democrats. It's a pretty short book. <laughs> it's going to be about three pages. <laughs> David, we're the last man standing. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a TriCast, uh, broadcasting on the AM, uh, WABC uh, Studios, AM 770, and WLIR, and AM 970, The Answer. And Lydia Serrano, you look great today. You are dressed to... To the nines. Thank you. I'm, or maybe I should say the tens. There you go. I am a co emceeing the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society Gala in uh, Westchester County today. today. I'm leaving a little early, but it's all for a good cause. So you got to help the kids with cancer make it a cancer free world. But we got a great show. You know, John, how you always say we tell everybody what's going on around the world. So before we get to Ambassador John Bolton, who's going to tell us what's going on overseas, we're going to find out what's going on in Albany with Fred Dicker. Then we're going to find out what's going on in Washington and all the voters throughout America with John McLaughlin. We're going to find out what the heck is going on with the economy with Steve Forbes. But first on the line, Ambassador Bolton. How are you, sir? Good afternoon. Glad to be with you. Well, does anybody really know what's going on in uh, the Ukraine or what Putin is thinking of? Well, no, at this point, uh, there's this just terrible grinding conflict uh, continues. The the Russians, uh, many thought by withdrawing from northern Ukraine, where they had, had not had much success, would get their act together and have more success in eastern Ukraine. It uh, doesn't seem to be going that way. I mean, they're still making small advances, uh, but but certainly nothing dramatic. And, you know, we are, we remain in a race for time. Can, can the Russians get their act together before the full weight of U.S. and other NATO military assistance uh, gets to the Ukrainian front lines? And opinions are still divided on that. Uh, so it's uh, the, the, the terrible conclusion from that is this conflict just continues to grind away. Uh, without without an end in sight. Well, um, there was uh, did did the Pope actually go to Moscow, or he was th- thinking about going to Moscow? No, I think I think uh, the he he was speaking from Rome, and uh, I I don't think at this point they're going to let him into Moscow, even if he wants to go. He uh, criticized given the his remarks. I, he yeah, criticized he, he, the, the patriarch. Yeah, he said, don't, don't be an altar boy for Putin, which uh, I don't oh, think won him any oh. friends or influence in Moscow, that's for sure. Yeah, that doesn't even protect the Pope. 
No, it was. I was surprised at that remark. It's sort of unpope like. <laughs> yeah. There was a there was an ambassador to Judge Richard Weinberg. There was an article in the New York Times which troubled me deeply. With the Times revealed that U.S. intelligence is giving information to the Ukrainians to take out Russian generals. Did you see that article? Yes, I did. I've seen I've seen those stories. Yes. Isn't that awful? I mean, why are they doing that? Well, you know, I think what we've been doing right from the beginning is giving the Ukrainians intelligence about potential Russian targets. And, uh, you know, that has included by the by what our administration has said or people in it have leaked uh, targeting Russian planes, Russian troop movements and so on. Whether we had specific information on particular generals, that that's not clear to me, although um uh, General Garasimov, the equivalent of their uh, of our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was in eastern Ukraine uh, last week. I think it was maybe two weeks ago, and uh, and the Ukrainians tried to to get him and and didn't succeed. But you wonder if if perhaps that was our intelligence. Uh, look, these are commanders in battle in the field in what we think is an illegitimate war, and they and they are they are therefore permissible targets. Ambassador, uh, is is anybody uh, trying to instigate uh, uh, additional warfare between Russia and, and the United States? Well, I think uh, I think what what is happening now is that Putin is looking for ways to try and intimidate the United States, try and intimidate Western Europe. And, and he has succeeded to a certain extent. Remember the the decision not to provide the Polish MiG fighter planes that the Ukrainians had requested. And what the way Putin's doing it is through making threats, uh, intimating possibly using nuclear weapons to try and and uh, and get the NATO alliance not to provide the kind of assistance that Ukraine needs. And there are many uh, who look at what we're doing right now and say this is not enough. That's, I've described it as I just did as a race between our provision of aid and, and uh, the, the performance of the Russian military. Uh, but it also calls into question exactly what our objectives in Ukraine are. And, uh, and, and I don't think we really have, have made clear to ourselves what those objectives are. I mean, I have, I have my suggestions, but to have an effective policy, you have to know what you want to end up with. And I don't think the president's articulated that yet. Ambassador Bolton, there are those rumors that Putin has cancer. If he does have cancer, what does that mean for the war? What does it mean for Ukraine and Russia? Well, you know, I, I can't I can't speak to the to the medical diagnosis. I don't I don't know. I wouldn't recognize it probably on television, e- even if he did have cancer. But I will say this, because I think the conclusion some people uh, make is, well, if he's facing his own mortality, uh, that's affecting his judgment and, and maybe uh, making irrational decisions. Uh, having having met uh, with Putin on many occasions, uh, I'll just say I, I don't think there's any emotional content to it. I think he's completely cold-blooded. Uh, and if he is suffering from cancer, uh, it may want him. It may make him want to achieve his objectives uh, while he's still alive. But I don't think it will fundamentally affect his decisions because. Uh, I, I just don't think that's that's in his makeup. I could be wrong, but that's that's my take. Ambassador, this is Craig Eaton. Uh, you know, we've heard since this whole war started that there's a lot of the military in Russia that are not happy with what Putin is doing. Do we have any insight into what's going on internally in Russia? Do we are we hearing anything? 
Well, there's certainly signs of, of plenty of discontent, no doubt about it. Clashes really between the upper levels of the military, political clashes, the upper level of the military, the upper level of the intelligence services over, over the uh, obviously uh, appallingly bad performance of the Russian troops in the first two months plus of war. Was it bad intelligence? Was it bad strategy, bad tactics? Uh, my, my guess is that uh, that there will be a reckoning after this is over, whenever whenever that is. But I would be surprised if in the middle of this uh, they went at each other's throats because that would distract from the problem they've still got in, in trying to achieve their objectives in Ukraine. And I think they're all probably gritting their teeth and trying to figure out how to achieve those objectives after the fact, I think, then could come – uh, the reckoning, and I, I bet there are going to be some uh, sharp knives out because they have suffered dramatic losses, according to the Ukrainians. I think those numbers are probably accurate. Uh, and the question is, even in their minds, will they achieve enough to justify those losses? Now, it's, it's certainly problematic, and uh, it's. I think everybody's losing over here. I think. Uh, uh, the European people are losing. I think uh, Russian people are losing. I think the Ukrainian people are losing. It's an overall loss to everybody. Well, it's a, a loss to uh, the Russian people, too, because now there are reports that Putin and his allies are threatening concentration camps and other suppression of people who are dissidents within Russia who oppose the war effort. Yeah, look, it's uh, uh, they, the, the people around Putin, but many other Russians – too, feel very passionately on this subject. They think Ukraine, and while we're on the subject, Belarus and some of the other territories of the former Soviet Union are part of Mother Russia, and and they are determined to bring them back into the empire. And uh, and and that, from their cost-benefit analysis, is an objective worthy enough to suffer these costs. Other Russians obviously disagree, and that that'll be part of the reckoning, I think, after the fact. But I don't think there's any. I don't think at this point there's sufficient popular dissent to threaten Putin's regime. Uh, what comes after, uh, you know, is harder to predict. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Bolton. Thank you so much thank for you. all that you do. And thank you for, Thanks for having me. Continue to speak for America. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, today is Cinco de Mayo Day. Mm-hmm. And Robert Yunain uh, from Goya sponsored uh, mm-hmm. all the events today. And, and uh, we had the Goya cook here, Frederick. The food was amazing. And the food was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, I got some beans. And th- You got it, huh? I got some beans. They were very good. And uh, thank you, Robert Yunane, CEO of Goya Foods, mm-hmm. uh, for everything you do. And, and those beans are a little bit extra special. There you, they are. They are. Well, now, now what else is going on? It, you there, know, there is some breaking news. It looks like that the Supreme Court justices are being threatened because over that leak regarding Roe v. Wade. I know, Judge Weinberg, you feel very passionate about this. As a former judge, how do you feel about if your home was being picketed? I think uh, this was uh, this kind of attack on people who have a different political ideological perspective on you. It started with a congresswoman from California, Maxine Walters. Waters. Waters, who uh, went out of her way to say that anybody who's serving the Trump administration should be confronted. And now you've elevated this to going after justice, the United States Supreme Court. And they're going to be picketing and demonstrating in front of their private homes. They announce their private addresses. This is awful. You do not want to have the judicial system of the United States 
subject to threats Under and threat. intimidation. You can't do that because if you can't believe the integrity of the judicial process, that people are being fair, they're applying the law to the facts that's without fear or favor, if you don't have that system in place, what are you going to believe? What, whatever happened to that family in, in St. Louis that was being threatened, their own homes, they were defending their own homes with a shotgun, and instead of uh, of the criminals being... Right. They, they, and they, they lived they, in they a they private arrested. subdivision. I know. No, and they had to plead out. They pled out, by the way. They pled to, out and they to, had to, to give up a, all their weapons. Yeah, they, they pled out. To, I don't know whether it was misdemeanors or violations. But it's I not forget. just Maxine Waters. You have this inflammatory rhetoric from President Biden, Kamala Harris, Tish James, and even Hillary Clinton. They're saying if Roe v. Wade, what's next? Brown versus the Board of Ed. And we know what is the Brown of border versus the Board of Ed? I have no clue. What's Brown versus knows. the Board of Ed is uh, desegregating. desegregating the schools. You know, so they're trying for- to say, John, that it, what's next? We're going to segregate schools again. Black or, kids and white kids won't be or, able to go to school they, together they, anymore. They're going to ban interracial marriages. They're that's trying to that's yes. terrorize uh, that's exactly it. the American people. Well, this is a sort of existentialist way of trying to project disagreement on one issue to 50 issues. And what I've been really actually disappointed about is that people who are pro-choice, and I'm one of them are at the same time not seemingly as bothered by the fact that the documents were leaked. The document was leaked. First of all, it's an incomplete document. It's a proposal for what could be the Supreme Court edict down the road, but that uh, there isn't mass condemnation in this country because we can't keep the Supreme Court uh, free from this kind of political wrangling. Then we're just repeating the process that happened uh, at you know, in front of the Capitol on January sixth, it's the same problem. It's that we just don't seem to be able to respect our differences of opinion without hyperbole and all kinds of uh, manufacturing of threats and fears all over the place. Governor, you're absolutely right. With the president, I know. I, I, I know you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the uh, the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States. And a majority of the Senate should have said this is outrageous that this was leaked and they should stop using this for political purposes. It's totally wrong for them to try to interfere in the judicial process. That's exactly what this president, this vice president, this majority leader, Senate and the Speaker of the House are doing. I understand we have a, a friend uh from Albany to tell us what the heck is going on in, in Albany. Lydia, would you introduce him? We have uh, Fred Dicker on the line. He's a for- former columnist for the New York Post. He served as a state editor for uh, New York for since 1982. And he knows if there's anything to know about Albany, it's Fred Dicker. How are you, sir? Gentlemen, greetings from Albany. Nice to speak to you all. I feel like I'm being uh, cross-examined by a panel of people who I've, at least some of whom I've known for a long time. <laughs> well, who's going to swear him in, John? Are we going to swear him in first? Or, uh... well, Fred, uh, I, I must tell you, um, Governor? The, fir- the first time I, uh, I had a radio show on uh, WEVD, and my first guest was Fred Dicker back in 1999. Oh, my and God. And then he interviewed me about 100 times after that and got me back for all the things I did to him that day. <laughs> Gentlemen, just in terms of Albany, actually, I started covering the state capitol over 40 years ago in 1977. Hugh Carey was governor at the time. So I covered six governors. And uh, the experience, of course, uh, over many, many, it was four decades, really was uh, pretty profoundly unsettling. And as many of you know, it's been a 
it's been a descent for this state to a point now where I think we're in you know, really a genuine crisis. We have terrible political leadership. We've got an awful financial situation. We've got the loss of population in New York and chaos at the Capitol as we speak. Well, I've been we've been sounding out here and and uh, the way New York goes, you got eight and a half million New Yorkers and three thousand violent criminals and and we can't get them all out of the streets and they're back into jails again. Well, John, you know the reason for that. I mean, you know, we're not discovering the wheel here. The solution is obvious, but the people who are in power and in particular in the legislature, um, whether it's uh, Carl Hasty or Andrew Stewart Cousins are in the grips of the progressives, quote-unquote, who are actually reactionaries because they're returning New York to the days of chaos, disturbance, violence, and incompetence, where once we were the great empire state, we're now the uh, what uh, was once re- uh, referred to as the vampire state. London, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, in 1990. You, you live up there. They're scared stiff. The, these, these, even the Dem- common sense Democrats are scared stiff. Why? They're scared stiff of the progressives and of the union money that's behind them and the special interest George Soros type money that's behind them. They feel that if they dissent from the politically correct, you know, woke uh, prescribed uh, positions that they have to hold, that they're going to be destroyed in the primary. And many of them are right. I mean, they would be destroyed. The littlest thing can sink people these days. You, you know what, no Fred? respect for this. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is Craig Eaton. I was the chairman of the Republican right. Party in Brooklyn for 10 years, and, and you were one of my go-to yeah. people when I was the chairman to find out what was yeah. happening in Albany. But you know what? The Democratic Party and the Democratic legislators need to take control of the Democratic Party again. They need to, they need to kick the progressives to the left, and they need to take control of their party because this state and this city are getting so bad. And if they don't take control now, there's a fallacious assumption behind what you're saying. And that assumes that there's some kind of cadre or core of moderate Democrats out there to do that. And I would argue that there isn't, that the moderate Democrats, the one scoop Jackson Democrats, the sensible Democrats, they're gone. They may have gone to Florida. Now now you're scaring me. They're not going to participate. You're scaring me. Well, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity there for someone to step up because this is crazy. It's an opportunity for the Republican Party in 2022 here, and I hope that we that's, can take advantage of this. That's that's absolutely true. It's actually, I would argue, it's now or never for the yeah. Republican Party, and it may very well be never. Hopefully not. You have a real, I think, ally in Kathy Hochul, who's an extraordinarily weak governor. <laughs> and we have an ally doing a good job. Now, I have one question for you: Is there an Andy Cuomo comeback? On the independent line. Well, the Republicans are hoping so. <laughs> we are hoping, Run, yeah. Andy, run, is what they're saying. <laughs> but in terms of an objective assessment, I would say absolutely not that he's dead political meat, that no one wants to go near him, no one wants to work for him. It's, no one will carry his petitions, no matter how much he spends of his remaining $14 million or whatever it is. So I think Andrew Cuomo is definitely politically dead. Now, we got some uh, breaking news that Matt Wanning just sent us. Hit it. Breaking news. WABC. Uh, Abortion activists who storm Catholic churches during mass on Mother's Day. There's a radical abortion group calling itself Ruth Sent Us, and it announced that it's mobilizing its activists to enter Catholic churches during mass this coming (laughs) Sunday in response to reports that the Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe v. Wade. 
Uh, I mean, this is getting out of control. This is getting out of control. I think, Fred, I think it already is out of control. But I thought thought the MAGA people were the most extreme uh, political affiliation. And white supremacy was the greatest threat facing our democracy. Fred, in all your years covering uh, politics, have you ever seen a more divisive situation, whether it's in the city or the state or, or the country? John, I haven't. And, uh, you know, I'm a student of history. My background was uh, I had a master's degree in American history. I almost got my doctorate. So I've always tried to bring a historian's eye to what's going on. I think what's happening in our nation today is without precedent. Maybe in the early days of the Great Depression or maybe at the time in the 1850s leading up to the Civil War. But what comparisons one could make are, are terrible comparisons. This is just a existential threat to the survival of the United States, in my view, is very, very serious. And uh, we talked earlier on the show about them picketing and demonstrating in front of the Supreme Court justices' houses. I mean, how reprehensible is that? Well, but they're doing it to intimidate them. Obviously, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible precedent, although it's not new. That technique has been used in, in the past at times. But it's an awful thing to due to Supreme Court judges. I mean, uh, these should be the most respected individuals, whether you agree with them or not. Uh, and, and they come from stellar backgrounds, without exception, I would say. It's, a, it's just another installment in the ongoing, and it's mainly on the left. It's not the right. It's the left that's mainly engaged in these thuggish-type tactics. And it's a tactic that they study. I mean, if you know the history of the left, especially of the communists, I mean, they were experts at doing this kind of stuff. The right is much more disorganized, and January 6th was more of a, of a, a kind of a, you know, un- uncoordinated uh, riot than it was any kind of insurgency or you know rebellion. Fred Dicker, it's a you... terrible time. I mean, I mean yeah. you, know, you live your life. We all live a great deal, and we want our country to do well. And to see what's happened to our nation is so depressing. That's one of the reasons I'm glad I'm not a journalist anymore. I mean, it would, it pains me to have to look at what's going on in our country and in what's going on in our state. I mean, it's a total breakdown of civility. I mean, this is mass hysteria. Among other things. And and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. People are going to get hurt. People are going to get killed with these, this, Riots and everything, and they're and they're not over. They're not outlawing abortion. They're turning it back to the states to uh, possibly right, to allow the course. states to decide, which actually is more democratic. No, but it, but it just gives these people an excuse. Absolutely. All they need is an excuse. Look at Black Lives yeah, Matter. Yeah. They needed an excuse to go out and protest. This gives the that mass a, a reason to go out and protest. They're deconstructionists. They yep. are literally the ones who are their leaders are trying to destroy the nation, yep. to nullify our history, to smear everything from the past, traditional values, middle class values, family values. They laugh at that. They mock it. And that was the essence of what kept America together, what brought people here from around the world. Fred Decker, thank you for coming on and giving us an update on Albany. And we're going to have you on again. And thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Take care, fellas. Now a report from Washington. We have John McLaughlin on the line. Uh, Trump, Trump, uh, major sweep, major sweep. Can you tell us about it? He won, what, 22 primaries? Well, it's actually this year it's, he's 55 and 0 when you Whoa. put in Texas. And, and, Whoa. And, and, wow. And, and you bring him. Texas was the first set of primaries, and then you have these other primaries with Ohio. So, uh, um, but he really defines the party right now. And we saw it in our national survey that we just released where Biden 
I mean, he's only 41% approval. He's 57 disapproved. That's 1,000 likely voters who are modeled after the 2020 turnout. And 51% of those voters had voted for Biden. Now they 25% of his actual voters disapprove of him. Uh, and 80, only 80% of the Biden voters are voting for Democrats for Congress. So the Republicans lead the generic ballot for Congress, 48-43. But Donald Trump, 69%, 69% of the uh, Republican primary voters want Trump to run again, and they would support him 83 to 14 if he runs again. And in a field of 13 candidates, uh, he's got 57% of the vote. Next closest candidate is DeSantis at 15, Pence at nine. Everybody else barely registers. So John McLaughlin, just to 55 and 0, when you say that, out of the 55 candidates that Trump endorsed, all 55 won their primaries. Yes, this year. So far. Now you have Pennsylvania yeah. coming up May 17th. Is there anything before Pennsylvania? Well, f- full disclosure, I work for Dave White and my brother Jim works for Dave McCormick. And yes, there's Nebraska on Tuesday. And full disclosure, Dr. Oz is my favorite doctor. Yeah, I'm, yes. It's like, but they're all competing for the Trump vote because he dominates the primaries. I mean, and he's leading, you talk about buyer's remorse. Trump nationally in this poll is leading Biden 50 to 43. He's leading Kamala Harris fifty to fifty-one, forty-one. I mean, it's it's. I mean, Biden. Where does Where does Harris get forty-one? I, who are those people? <laughs> forty-one well, people. Forty-one, 41 people, I think. I mean, 41 really? People. Are, are there forty-one it's people? Forty-one votes, Democratic I think. Right, John? Yeah. No, no, no. It's it's a base Democratic vote. I mean, it's at some point, but it's 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 like she's. I mean, we we have the ability to win the Hispanic vote and pick up African-American votes because of the failure right now. I mean, whether it's crime keeping keep rising nationally or the inflation is out of control. I mean, you've talked about it so many times. And uh, uh, security. I mean, we'll, you know, he can't. Biden hasn't stopped the war in Ukraine. And by the way, guess which oligarchs he is not sanctioned. The one uh, that gave you know? uh, Biden, uh, Hunter some money? The husband Hunter Biden's clients have Thank not you. been sanctioned. Yeah. Then, Why is that front page news, yeah. John? I forgot. Yep. Because it's the, it's the same reason why they didn't cover the Hunter Biden laptop. They're covering the mainstream media. You talk about it on this radio show, but the mainstream media is still covering for Biden. And they're, 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 in November, the voters are just going to throw them out. And now the White House press secretary, the, the new White House pr- press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, Jen Psaki stepping down soon to... Uh, she's got a multi-million dollar deal, it sounds like, with MSNBC. And uh, Jean-Pierre, her partner, is Susan Malveaux of CNN. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just, it's incestuous. I mean, look at the, you know, look at CNN. They had Chris Cuomo, so they got to replace him with some other Democrat. And, you know, you have, uh, you have Chuck Todd is a Democrat still at NBC, Stephanopoulos at ABC. I mean, you know, we love ABC Radio in New York because you have Democrats, common sense Democrats, you have Republicans on, but the mainstream media, they're just going to watch their ratings tank. I mean, more people watch Fox News and Newsmax these days than the mainstream media for news. So, um, and they listen to your radio station. So your ratings are going up. Our right? ratings have soared. Uh, our March ratings, we're in the top five in the entire region in the East Coast. And, and our April ratings are going to be even higher than our yeah. March ratings. And, and, and you're number one at five o'clock, John, and that's not, not even, even including the other stations. Yes.
And now I want to bring it back home, John McLaughlin. What about Hopewell and Adams? Their polling numbers are slipping. I mean, it looks like people are kind of getting tired of the whole act by Mayor Adams. Where is the action behind all that great talk, all that swagger? Well, by the way, you had a great guest on before me, Fred Dicker, and you've got Steve Forbes after me, so that's great. So, uh, but uh, but in terms of uh, uh, New York State with Hochul, I mean, she's got great rhetoric, but she doesn't deliver on what she's promising. And so, I work for Lee Zeldin, and Lee Zeldin is running dead even with her in the general election polls that are modeled in a likely voter turnout. And you, now, there's a lot of polls out there of registered voters. There's 13 million registered voters in New York. Only 6 million voted in 2018, and that was high. That was much higher than it was in 2014. If you get a typical likely voter turnout without ballot harvesting, without non-citizens voting, without uh, other means where the Democrats could try to rig the election, Lee Zeldin has an excellent chance of beating her in the election in November because regardless of the rhetoric, I mean, mean, look at – you know, she forced this guy, Brian Benjamin – off the ticket because he was arrested for, uh, you know, for uh, uh, having uh, grants directed to his donors, et cetera. They didn't even give the guy the presumption of innocence. They just forced him out. But, but you know what, John, John, John this is Craig Eaton. You brought up a great point here. Yeah, you know, we need to get people out to vote. And, and everyone that's sitting and listening to this show on their couch right now saying, I'm not happy with the way New York City is. I'm not happy with the way New York State is. I'm, I don't feel safe anymore. Needs to make sure they go out and vote. And you know what they need to vote for? They need to vote for change. Well, the yes. big problem, John... The big problem is, and I say this is the House Democrat, is you have one party rule in the city of New York and the state of New York, and that has to change. And not only is it one party rule, it's by super majorities, which can intimidate yeah. both a mayor and a, and a governor. And in fairness to, to Mayor Adams, I mean, he's tried to do what he can, but as John Casantini's always says, he goes up to Albany and they tell him to uh, pound sand. They will not yeah. do what they have to do to make this city safe. No, he should endorse Lee Zeldin. So, and, and because I said, no, seriously, when you look at it, he, you know, they need, he needs the governor to back him up and she hasn't backed him up. I mean, she hasn't fired Bragg. She hasn't, you know, changed the cashless bail laws. It's all cosmetic. You're still releasing criminals with guns and they're back out there and you're seeing it every night on the news. And the, the interesting thing about the governor's race, when Lee Zeldin was looking at it over a year ago and I said, we're becoming part of New England, where New England is dominated by Democrats. But what do they have? They have Republican governors to keep the crazy legislature in a check and balance situation. So you've got Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. You've got uh, you've got that, uh, Phil Scott up in uh, Vermont, a Republican governor. Uh, you've got Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. You had a Republican governor in LePage. And in Connecticut, it's likely that uh, Bob Stefanowski is going to beat Ned Lamont this year. So we are following that trend that if the legislature is crazy, and I don't think they'll have their supermajorities because we'll fix redistricting with the state Senate because they, they, they threw out the, the, the redistricting plan that was going to rig the election. So we'll get them back into a regular majority. Okay, maybe even come real close to get rid of them in the state Senate. But then uh, you need Lee Zeldin to, uh, as governor to be able to veto what the, this legislature will do because they're, they're, they're really out of control. I mean, it's, they're just totally out of John, control. John, we're out of time. They're, they're yelling at me from the control booth to okay. take a break. Thank you so much for everything you're doing and filling in the American people. God bless you. Well, thank you.
Let's take a let's take a baseball team. Go go Yankees. Always go Yankees. Go Ferry Hawks. Well, why don't we just call them Hawks? Go Hawks. Go Hawks. Okay. Uh, let's take a, a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to have Tom Fitton. He's the president of Judicial Watch, and he's going to tell us what the heck is going on with this leak and the investigation. And and then oh, we're going to have Steve Forbes too about the economy. Tell us, you know a lot about the economy. What happened with the? How many points did it drop today? Over a thousand points. Oh, almost eleven hundred points. Oh boy! Keep and it right here. Keep it right here. Cats at night. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. This is John Katsimatidis. We're back. And uh, we got a few things to talk about amongst ourselves. And then we're going to have Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch. But I want to give a shout out to my Uber driver this morning, Gopis. And... uh, he was a great Uber driver. He got me around. He got me to the church on time. <laughs> Margo must have been very happy about that. Well, guys, uh, uh, what's going on in our country, our city, it's horrible. I was on Fox uh, Business this morning, uh, and uh, I shot it out. I said, we have to fix. We have to fix a crime before this November. And if we don't fix it before this November then New York is in trouble. What do you say, guys? Governor, uh, I think that when you have the increase in crime at the multiple uh, numbers that they are right now, it is almost impossible to fix it, meaning bringing it back to the levels where it was during the Bloomberg days. Uh, I I think that's going to be a very difficult thing to do. And I think that the ability of mayors, no matter who they are, to lower the crime rate in the way we expect them to do is a very, very hard task. During the de Blasio administration, crime went down for six straight years, but crime around the country went down higher, in a sense lower, than uh, uh, New York City. So it wasn't necessarily, what it really was, was the aging out of a lot of uh, defendants who were basically drug addicts and, and um, people who committed crimes in the pursuit of drugs. It, it's going to be very difficult, but the public has a right to demand it. And if it isn't demanded, then what you said, John, will come true. Well, my, I think we're posting on uh, our website the interview I did this morning with Stuart Varney. And I was angry. I was angry that we have to get our, st- our streets cleared up. Well, I think you're, you're right to be angry and if you're not angry, you should, at the very least, everyone should be concerned because the city and the state cannot survive if this continues because people will not come back and work in the offices. They will. You walk up and down the streets in the retail businesses. You see the stores are empty. People are afraid to go in. The drugstores are, are locking up all their products. You have organized shoplifting gangs. You have violence every day. We're in a crisis right now in New York City, and I'm looking at the CompStat report through April 24th, and, and every one of those numbers is increasing twofold. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Even, even the petty larceny charges are almost double. But you know what? It's not, just, it's not just a crime on the street. It's the legislature, and we have to change the laws. We have to change the bail reform. We have to change the discovery rules. We have to go back to where we were under the Giuliani administration. There, there was enforcement of the law at that point. 
There's 3,000 violent criminals. Violent. I'm not talking to people that steal a a loaf of bread. Violent criminals on the streets in New York. And at what point do you say enough is enough? These people can't live without in a civilized world. At what point is it? Used to be three strikes and you're out. Is it five strikes, ten strikes, twenty strikes? But the irony and the tragedy of the situation we're facing is we know exactly what has worked historically and what can work again. It's not complicated. We know what has to be done. You have to go after the theory that if you do the little things wrong, you increase respect for the law by policing against the little things. Whether it's fair beating, whether it's fair beating, whether it's sleeping in the street, whether it's public urination, whether it's aggressive panhandling. You have to go after that stuff because you're sending out a message that that's tolerable. It's not tolerable because it leads to bigger and worse crime. You know what, Judge? Uh, Chairwoman Katsimatidis had Commissioner Ray Kelly at a, at a meeting a few weeks ago, and he said stop, question, and frisk, by all accounts, was one of the biggest tools that the police department used to get the criminals off the street. And they took that away because they said it was discriminatory. Well, I, I will tell you because I followed that very carefully and I knew the federal judge who ruled on that. She was wrong. If that case had been appealed, she would have been reversed. But in de fact, Blasio refused to appeal it. That's yeah, exactly right. That's exactly and, what happened. And, and, worse, and worse still, they removed her from the case. The Second Circuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, knew that she was biased and unfair, and they took her off the case. So you know, John, you're absolutely right. They would have reversed that case. If you're not carrying a gun, what is your fear of getting stopped, questioned, and frisked? That's the question that I have. Exactly right. And by the way, and if you talk to Ray Kelly about this, and I have, Commissioner Kelly, the fact is that the evidence that was put in was tainted evidence, was tilted evidence. It wasn't a fair hearing. It wasn't a fair trial. She knew what she was going to do before she uh, sat down and assumed the bench on this. It's terrible. Well, I think we're due for another break. And when we come back, we may come back. uh, uh, We may be coming back with uh, Mr. Forbes. It's a common sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Well, we're back. And... uh, we have with us uh, now Tom Fitton. Uh, Tom, it's uh, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. Uh, welcome to the show. W- Tom hey, Fitton is you, one of the leading uh, advocates for, for open government, for uncovering the truth. Judicial Watch has had litigation where they've revealed the, the cover-ups and the, and the deep state. You're to be commended for that. I'll tell you, Tom, you. what I'm very concerned about now is the attempt by the media and by Officials who should know better, the president of the United States, the vice president, the speaker of the House, the majority of the Senate, trying to intimidate the justices of the Supreme Court on this absolute theft of uh, governmental property, this abuse of the judicial process. What say you, Tom? I think it's a dangerous time for our rule of law and our republic. Uh, you know, the, the left has now decided that uh, all bets are off when it comes to the deliberations of our judiciary and the Supreme Court. And they're to be pressured the way any other politician would be pressured. And it's a dangerous game in the sense that the leak of this draft opinion is putting the lives of the justices at at risk because, you know, you could have some lunatic decide decide that the way to protect Roe versus Wade is to kill one of them. Yeah, I think uh... that that is such an outrage that that has happened. 
with it. They're giving out their home. They're giving out their home addresses. They're giving out their home addresses, Tom, and and they're organizing demonstrations and uh, and walkbys their homes. I mean, this is absolutely awful. It is, and every judge in the country must be looking at this, thinking, "There, for the grace of God, go I." Uh, because this hasn't only ruined the Supreme Court and damaged the Supreme Court, but every appellate court and, frankly, every every judge who engages in confidential deliberations must be thinking, if I have a hot case that there's public interest in, am I going to be able to decide this case uh, without leaks or pressure like this? Uh, this is this is awful. And the Supreme Court specifically was damaged. And, and you know, the question is, is the damage reparable uh, and how extensive? But uh, these are dangerous times. If I were the chief judge and I, of the, the the chief justice, and I ain't no lawyer, but I know enough about the law that the court has inherent authority to institute contempt proceedings and to initiate its own investigation beyond having the marshal do it. I bring in a prosecutor. I bring in a special counsel to figure out what went on here. Well, that, that's exactly. It. I don't know if I don't know if the chief justice has that authority, but certainly uh, uh, Merrick Garland, Judge Garland, the Attorney General of the United States. Can, can do that. That's what they should be doing. And the president, the vice president, the speaker, and the majority of the Senate should be, uh, should be quiet on this issue. You know, if I was going to give uh, my advice to the, the Supreme Court, I would issue that. I'd have a meeting tomorrow, take the vote, and issue the decision, and close this down now. What say you? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I guess this is a tactical and strategic debate that they're having right now because any difference between the decision or the draft opinion and the final opinion is going to be uh, scrutinized and under and frankly the final opinion is going to be undermined um, now I'm, I'm sure the opinions changed since it was initially drafted in February but I, you know thinking about your idea and I think it's important because the justice the justices lies are at risk here uh, they should just revert back to the first draft. And, and release it as as the opinion of the court, you know, with the justices who want to sign on to it, presuming there's a majority. But how can they release it when there were no arguments presented before the court? No, it's like uh, uh, rendering a, a verdict about a trial and there was no trial. No, I, I think there was an argument on this. Wasn't there an argument on this, Tom? There, yeah, there was, was no argument because, the, the because it's year, a draft and the, opinion. And the opinion was written after no. that. No, no, I think there were arguments last year, Governor, and I think— Yeah, there were arguments last year, but they were not the arguments that the court was going to rule on. They were arguments, but the the court is ruling on the arguments that come before them. This is part of our process itself, and then the court hears the arguments and goes back and makes a decision. If the decision could become— The process happened—the process went through—the typical Supreme Court decision-making process was proceeding— uh, there was a draft that was created after the court met, uh, after they had their oral argument on this debate, and Alito was tasked with drafting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Governor. I think they had the oral argument on this. Yeah, right. but, 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 but even though he's drafted a an opinion, uh, the other judges haven't heard it, and they haven't discussed it. Yeah, there was something I read today, Governor. It said, the court has confirmed the authenticity of the draft opinion but stressed that it is not final and did not reflect the final position of any member of the court in a statement. That's exactly what I'm saying. So it's premature. It's really premature. The governor's right in that regard, and that's why it's a question. You know, is this draft opinion even going to get a majority? What would get a majority at this point? And, you know, now we've... 
factor of the public disclosure of the initial draft. What a mess. What a mess. It is a mess. Uh, well, Tom Fitton, thank you for your input, and uh, we'd love to have you on again soon. And uh, we hope uh, for, we are hoping for America and praying for America. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. And we're going to take a break here, and we're going to come back with Steve Forbes. What the heck is going on with the economy? It went down a, a, a thousand points. What a roller coaster. Up a thousand points yesterday, down a thousand points today. What's going to happen tomorrow? Let's take that break and come back with Steve Forbes. <laughs> John this is Cats at Night. Uh, John Katzenmatidis here, and... Uh, uh, today was an interesting day. The market went down. Uh, yesterday, it went up 1,000 points, give or take. Today, it goes down 1,000 points. Who's better to talk to it as, us about it and tell us where the heck is the economy going than Steve Forbes, one of the leading uh, economists in our country? How are you, Steve? Doing very well, John. How are you? Well, I, I lost 1,000 points today. I, I got to calculate uh, if I still can buy some groceries. <laughs> well, yes, and, 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 and inflation has affected food prices, and uh, the Definitely. Fed is affecting the price of money. <laughs> well, tell us, uh, where the heck are we? You know, yesterday the uh, Powell got on and uh, said he there was no way he was going to do three quarters of a point. He was only did a half a point, and uh, there was jubilance, and the market goes up a thousand points, and then today down the other side of the roller coaster. Well, I think uh, yesterday they realized the difference between uh, half a point, three quarters of a point, especially when he's going to be raising them every meeting the Fed has between now and probably the end of the year, uh, well, was really a distinction that uh, really didn't matter very much. And the real question is, is how uh, how is the Fed going to inadvertently push us into a downturn, into a recession? And uh, they unfortunately, the Fed believes that the only way to control inflation is by slowing the economy down instead of stabilizing the value of the dollar. Uh, back in the late 1980s, 1990s, for a while under Alan Greenspan, uh, the Fed sort of uh, tied the dollar's value informally, very informally, to gold and to a commodity indexes. So you had some uh, sort of benchmark. Uh, but today the Fed is flying blind. So the underestimated inflation, remember transitory, uh, you know, life is transitory, but they underestimated inflation. Uh, now they are in danger of uh, overreacting. They're a doctor that doesn't know what to do. Uh, they're doctors, you know, you remember 300 years ago, they cured patients by bleeding them. Uh, that got rid of the pain and suffering because it got rid of the patient. So uh, the Fed is <laughs> operating blind. <clears throat> well, you know, I mean, we gave them a simple answer, uh, uh, Steve. All they have to do is open up North America to crude oil, and, and oil will go back down to $55 a barrel, and there'll be no inflation. But they'd rather raise interest rates well, this, and this, wipe this, out this, the real this, estate market. Yeah, well, this this raises an interesting point, which we discuss in a new book I co-authored called Inflation. And that is there are two kinds of inflation, the non-monetary and monetary. Non-monetary would be you have a drought or a COVID shutdowns, which raises prices, or what you're touching on when the government creates conditions that sends the price of energy up artificially, not through supply and demand, but because they suppress supply. Uh, the government did it the other day again, not, in, not just in energy, but when they put in the new rules on terms of infrastructure projects, which is going to delay infrastructure projects, make them more expensive, 
make them have to go through a lot of rigmarole, delay their completion. That raises the cost of living. So that's the non-monetary. And then the monetary kind is when you uh, undermine the value of the dollar, uh, as the Fed did, creating a lot of money. And uh, we're experiencing both, monetary and non-monetary. But you're right about in energy. Just get out of the way. <laughs> so, hey, you, you, could solve, you could solve the whole inflation problem by opening up North America. That's all. I mean, it's so simple. Um, well, what, uh, that, that, that and stop printing too many dollars. That, that, now, that there's another too. thing going on, uh, Steve. <laughs> I don't know if you saw what, what the other thing that's going on. Somebody, you know, when we, me and you discussed, and we also discussed with our friend Larry, that uh, the CEOs were staying in front of the curve and raising the prices on the first quarter so they don't miss their earnings for the uh, first quarter. But some of them, some of those companies are having an old crap situation and their sales fell way off. What do you, what do you hear about that? Well, uh, when uh, you're, uh, that's why you got to look for companies that uh, know how to uh, control costs and uh, have a, a base where uh, they can uh, adjust if they need to on, on prices. But when you raise prices, uh, you, you know that people are going to react. And even though uh, what, what's happening now, John, is that, as you know, a lot of people who got a lot of payments uh, during the COVID shutdowns, they're running through that money. They don't have the cash reserves they uh, used to have. And so uh, that's going to hurt uh, what people can buy. If the price of stuff is going up, food, energy, that means you have less money to spend elsewhere. And that means a slower economy. Understood. Um what else do you want to tell the American people? We have a minute left. Uh, how about uh, the government getting out of the way and removing barriers to progress? How about the Federal Reserve stabilizing the value of the dollar? And how about Joe Biden shocking the world by proposing a big tax cut? Well, well <laughs> Senator Schumer has proposed to fight inflation by increasing taxes. Yes, that always works. Raise, raise taxes, which means, uh, which, which means people have less, businesses have less. Sure, far firmly for disaster, but that's never stopped uh, Schumer and his cohorts. Steve Forbes, <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, tell thank us about you. your new book. It's called Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. You can buy it on Amazon. Reader-friendly, no jargon. Explains what you need to know about this affliction that uh, the government has given us. By Steve Forbes. I, and uh, thank you for your, your autograph book. And I'm reading it, and uh, it's very interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Keep the fight up. Keep, keep the fight up. And Judge Weinberg, uh, Craig Eaton, Governor Patterson, you know, you hear that, you hear that music? You <laughs> stand Star Wars for what? The, Truth, justice, justice, and the American, American way. way. <laughs> and that's what this show stands for this. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Uh, And uh, God bless New York. God bless America. We really need a blessing. Thank you so much. And have a great night. Thank you, John.